Hello and welcome to Seeking Sustainability Live podcast. I'm your host, JJ Walsh, based in Hiroshima, Japan. This series is taking a look at sustainability from various viewpoints by talking to experts, insiders, activists, and innovators from across Japan. Today we're talking with Linda and Kana, who are running the INOW project called Ino in one of my favorite destinations in Japan, Kamikatsu, a small zero waste focused town in Tokushima Prefecture on Shikoku Island. Now, Kamikatsu is a very special place. Since 2003, the local government has been working with the community to try to do zero waste policies. They are one of the most successful case studies in terms of sustainable community. They are at 80% diversion from landfill, which is very impressive considering the rest of Japan is only at 20%. So it's a great pleasure to talk to these two young innovators who are creating a homestay experience and local、uh, farming and crafts and、uh, other activity experience for 10 days and now a shorter three day program to introduce people to a slower, more meaningful type of travel experience. In this amazing little town of Kamikatsu. Kamikatsu, thanks you guys for joining. Of course, thank you for thank having you. us. So wonderful to have you guys here. Now, before we talk a bit more about your really interesting and exciting project that you're doing in Kamikatsu,、uh, let's hear a little bit about you guys. Can you tell us a little bit about? How you got interested in sustainability and how you got the idea to go to Kamikatsu and start this project? Do you want to start? Go for it. Okay. <laughs> okay.、Um, so, my name is Linda Ding and I'm from Canada. I originally came to Japan because I was a tourist myself.、Um, it was a 10 day writing retreat that my writing teacher was organizing. So, I had heard about Kamikatsu before、um, that there was a zero waste village in Japan, but I didn't connect that that actually was Kamikatsu. So, I actually went in without knowing anything about the zero waste system here. And on about the eighth day of the writing retreat, I realized that this was one of the most beautiful places in the world that I've ever been to.、Um, and I think when you're spending a life looking for places that make you happy and you find a place like that, then you should take that opportunity because life is talking to you. So, I didn't. Leave my tour essentially.、Um, I just decided to cancel all my onward plans and then move to Kamikatsu. And when I did that, I didn't know anybody here.、Um, so I got connected to a woman who was running the zero waste cafe in Kamikatsu. And then she was also running an internship, or she wanted to start an internship. And then so I became her first intern.、Um, and by living with her, we started talking. I started learning about zero waste through her.、Um, and then. So this, this might be a great chance to introduce Terumi san. Are you talking about Azuma Terumi? Yes. Okay, so she's one of the co founders、mm-hmm. with you guys, right? In the Eno 
you know, you know. Initiative, yes <laughs> okay so uh i know uh terumi-san i've met her many times many years ago um so she is one of the co-founders you three together are the co-founders is that right yes okay go ahead continue <laughs> so with her we decided to start an internship program um and because of covid we actually couldn't go forward with the plans that we originally had which was starting us as um an eco hostel and then trying to build a permaculture community with the land that we had um so we started trying out different ideas about what else we could do and that's kind of when we decided what we were good at was the internship program that we had already begun and we wanted to expand that into a more formalized program and that's when we decided to come up with Eno. <laughs> and I guess I have a little bit of a different story and background. Um, I studied business and then did my master's in sustainability and tourism management. So it was quite, quite, I had dreamt of doing something like, you know, and then it kind of fell into my laps. And then I was like, this is it. This is the community based project where I get to be in a beautiful village. And Kamikatsu was on my radar for a while, but I, like Linda said, like just didn't connect the dots that this could be a possibility. And um, I had stopped my work in COVID and then had connected with Linda. I was like, what is another Canadian doing in this tiny rural village in Japan? And um, it was just very serendipitous. And at the time, you know, was just about to begin. And I thought, well, I have things I can help with and things I can, I can give. And um, then, you know, really kind of formalized from there and it took off. And so here we are now almost one year almost one year yeah into the yeah. Isn't, that, isn't that incredible that you started it right during coronavirus mm -hmm. right during the the dip in travel but you've been able to do something so interesting and so innovative and hopefully be able to continue uh once travel kind of picks up a mm -hmm. bit more into the future. So both of you had done a study, university study in sustainable tourism and travel. Is that right? Not myself, just kind of. <laughs> so Linda, you were at McGill. Where kind of where did you study? I did my bachelor's in Guelph, which is about an hour from Toronto, and then I did my master's in Europe. So it was the European masters um, in Denmark, Slovenia, and Spain, and it was focused in tourism. Wow, how interesting. Now, I was so happy to see that a lot of the people that you have in your video introducing the eNow concept. And just to tell everybody, eNow, why eNow? It looks like mm -hmm. I now, but you mm -hmm. pronounce it eNow because. So Ino is actually Awaben. Awaben means it's the Tokushima dialect. So Kamikatsu is located in Tokushima Prefecture. Um, and Ino means Kaido. Um, and that's to return home. Yes, let's go home. Let's go home. So people will be like, oh, it's a late night, like, you know. And so it's the idea that everyone will always have a place to return home to in Kamikatsu. Nice. And I'm just curious about the spelling. Why mm -hmm. not with an E and a no instead of I and N O W? Does that also have meaning? Yeah, I mean, because when people read it, it does look like I know. And then so we did want to conceive the idea around that fact of I know. So like, I know that this place is beautiful and we want to share it so that you can know too. But it's also open for interpretation. So anybody can read it how they want to. Um, but most of our guests also read it as I know. 
Yeah. That's wonderful. And just, just to give the listeners a bit of background about me, I have been to Kamikatsu many times. Uh, I was doing research and writing academic papers about Kamikatsu many years ago. Mm -hmm. I also have been in contact with an author who wrote a book called Abundance of Less mm -hmm. and the Culture. Have you read this book? Um, that is my writing teacher. So he, I actually got inspired to come to Kamikatsu because of this book. Um, Wonderful. Because a lot of the people that you have in your program are in this book, which I've wanted to talk to him um, for a while on the on the series. And he was living in California and was having some forest fire situation last time I contacted him. So I'm really excited to get him on the show now that we have you guys on and have all these amazing kamikatsu connections with people from his book many years ago. So it's such a wonderful connection. Go in. Mm. Like, so serendipitous yeah serendipitous so one of the people from his book which i know that you also are working with as part of your program is atsuko watanabe and osamu osamu nakamura right mm -hmm. yes i actually and, want to take this moment um and just kind of give a little bit of background about what you know is in case your listeners don't understand it so we are a homestay program and we call it transformative tourism because the idea is not that you're coming as a tourist, but we want to integrate you into what life is like in the village. So a lot of people know Kamikatsu itself or the zero waste system because the village doesn't have a garbage, um, they don't collect your garbage. Every resident is responsible for bringing their own garbage and separating it into 45 different categories at the central garbage separation center. And most people come here because Kamikatsu now, especially in the media, has been raised as kind of this pinnacle of Japanese sustainability. Um, it's an example that people use all over the world to show that Japan is trying their, to do their part. Um, but when people come to learn about this system, mostly you can just go as a tourist, you know, just observing, taking pictures of the different separation categories. But that, from our experience, also living here, doesn't really get you to understand what the system means or how that actually has an impact. Yeah, uh, Sarah and Brett have joined from Have Thanks, you guys. Uh, Sarah says 45 categories, hooly dooly. And this, when I visited Kamikatsu years ago and I went back and told my friends in Hiroshima about the 45 categories, this is the same response. Everybody's like, no way, how? And when Terumi-san actually gave me the tour of the waste facility, she actually said, there's actually about 60 categories. It's more than 45. And I have since visited the Recology Waste Recycling Center in San Francisco, which is also doing 80% diversion from landfill, same as Kamikatsu. Mm -hmm. But you have a much smaller population. They have a huge metropolis. They do curbside pickup. Everybody in Kamikatsu has to take it to the recycling center. It's such an interesting comparison. And of course, even though your population is small, it's still amazing that you're able to reuse and recycle so much of the waste. Mm -hmm. I think, and I talked to the Kamikatsu government as well years ago, I think one of the key features to get so high for a diversion from landfill is composting. 
Mm-hmm. So composting is 100% mandatory for all businesses and all residents in Kamikatsu, same in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And I think if anybody really wants to reduce your waste, composting, getting your kitchen waste back into the ground, you know, having that circular economy idea, that is really key. I saw in the video you guys going through the waste uh, sorting station. And how did you guys find it? It's an adjustment from where you're living before, right? Mm-hmm. And I think like, as you said, the population is really small. We're a community oh. completely different scale um, than the other place you had mentioned. Um, and I think it works because we form a sense of community at the garbage station as well. Um, and in terms of like how it is to ad- adapt and adjust to this lifestyle of garbage separation it's like surprisingly easy once you start and i think you realize very quickly how much waste you produce when you have to kind of break down every single item into a category and we don't use 45 categories on a daily basis we probably use like maybe six um and a lot of things are separated by color so you'd be surprised just by separating color how many different categories you use um but I think, yeah, composting is great. Um, and it's a it's a way for also you to realize like how much organic waste you produce. I think people just throw it out and forget about it so instantaneously that we're not aware of kind of our consumption and production in terms of waste. And also compost um, or organic waste itself is the reason why landfills have this smell, right? So you have organic as well as um, non-organic separate or like composting decomposing together and then that creates the anaerobic situations where you have a lot of lactic acid and that creates you know the landfill smell so with our garbage system or our garbage center in kamikatsu we actually have a hotel that is located right next to the center and so you would never conceive of that in a western perspective because you would expect no one would want to you know, stay in kind of a luxury place that's right next to the garbage center. Mm -hmm. So it really shows the difference between actually the things that should be going back into the land, which is what nature wanted, and how we conceive of garbage and how we put everything together. It just really, I think, shows the brokenness of the system that exists. Absolutely. Uh, We have some questions about your program, how many days of a stay. We're going to get to that, Prasanna. Just wait a second. Mm -hmm. Um, One more thing I want to point out before we move on. I love that at the waste sorting station in Kamikatsu, now this is the new facility. I've been to two other waste sorting stations before this, and this is in the shape of a question mark, and it's called Y, and it's supposed to be also an education center. Maybe after Corona, they'll start doing seminars and stuff. So there's a lot more versatility for the new uh, area, not only waste sorting. It's very exciting. Um, But this idea of cost and benefit for recyclables. So plastic has a cost. If you give plastic waste, there is a negative, right? There's a cost. The community has to pay to get rid of anything that's not recyclable. And for example, here, glass in the lower picture has a benefit, 42 yen. And I think this is really key and something that the manager at Recology in San Francisco was telling me too. If you're buying something, try to think of does that container have a benefit or a cost? 
if your community has to pay to get rid of it, so for example, plastic, don't use it re or reuse it right if it has a benefit you can make money from it that means that recycling system for glass metal paper has value so go ahead and use those and i thought that was such a nice way to think about the containers that we use and in kamikatsu you guys make it so clear so that's a wonderful strategy about thinking about your waste thinking about what you buy right i mean just a clarification so what you see in that picture the red actually means that it costs the village money so broken glass in that um separation category is going to cost the village 42 yen per kilo to get rid of and then also um well i guess the clarity and the transparency is definitely helpful um i think that in practice you know you have to also really want to seek out that information so it's available to you on the signs it tells you what the category is how much it'll cost or benefit the village to get rid of it also actually tells you where their uh, material is going to go to so where in japan the facilities for recycling will be and also what it will become mm -hmm. yeah fantastic so if it's whole glass the community would probably get some money but if it's broken glass they have to pay that's really interesting thanks and for clarifying that's such a good point because like when you get like oil or certain bottles and stuff you can usually choose between glass or plastic and i've always chosen glass if i needed it i mean it obviously reduces first before recycle um but in terms of like buying drinks and things like that mm -hmm. if you need to um you can certainly think about what are the benefits or what are the costs and it's easier to reuse for yourself, right? Like we we bought sparkling water um, for years. I was buying in plastic bottles because it was more convenient. But I hated the idea of using plastic, buying plastic, having demand for plastic because I do cleanups. I see it in the water all the time. So I bought these nice glass bottles. I've reused them for years. It's nice to have cold water in the fridge, right? Mm -hmm. That kind of reuse in your own house. So finding what works for your your own situation is so important, right? Yeah, and then also one of the things Rumi says too, having lived in the system her whole, well, not her whole life, but you know, she mentioned because she also used to work for the MPO. So she was behind the scenes understanding, you know, where those contracts come from. So our recycling system works because all of these different contractors work with the town government um, where they say we recycle this material this way. And then because of that uh, contract, then we have a new separation category and the rules for that category are dictated by and she mentioned that you know because she worked behind the scenes she really understood which materials cost the town money and then so when she was doing her own shopping like for example pet bottles are quite bad for recycling so then she'll figure out you know when she's shopping whether or not this is something she actually wants to buy yeah that's so important to realize and i think this is a problem right because all of japan has the image of being so clean mm -hmm. visitors always comment about this oh japan is so clean mm -hmm. yes it's clean but in terms of recycling and reusing and using too much plastic there are definitely hurdles here um that you know needs to be overcome so we mentioned before kamikatsu is at 80 percent diversion from landfill reuse and recycling is really higher than most of japan i think on your website you mentioned 20 percent mm -hmm. is the usual standard for for japan so Outward. definitely a great place to go and learn how it should be done right mm -hmm. 
Well, we, we hope so. <laughs> and there's also, I mean, limitations. I mean, it's easier when you have a small scale versus a big scale. Obviously, it's very different. And the impact is different as well. But I think, as I mentioned before, like the transparency of information, having more awareness from the individual, from the household can make differences. And there's definitely the factor of this being Japan. So when people ask us, for example, how they can take the system into bigger cities or even into foreign countries, one of the things about the Japanese is it's easier to get buy-in when it comes from the government. Um, so people are more likely to follow when they feel like it's a rule or there's social pressure. And then so also because this is a community, you know, there are no penalties against miscategorizing um, or separating improperly. But everybody is your neighbor, essentially. People know each other. The Zero Waste Center also acts as a community center. So it's a place where people gather to see each other because the village is quite spread out. And then because of this, you know, people kind of police themselves in a sense. And so when you think about bringing this into another system, you have to think how, even if you have the system in place, if people don't follow in it, it's not going to work. I, I remember uh, years ago, and I know one of your videos on Instagram, you go to the farmer's market and you show how amazing it is that they have all this local produce, but mm -hmm. still some of it is being wrapped in plastic. And that was a real shock for me to make my long journey to get to Kamikatsu thinking it's going to be some kind of utopia. And in many ways it is. But there's still some typical practices from around Japan, which is still kind of a hurdle, even in Kamikatsu, right? Yeah, I think it's definitely a misconception that everything is perfect here. And zero waste here means something different abroad. We're not producing zero waste. We're just recycling intensively. Um, and as you said, diverting from landfill. And I think that there are certain cultural things that will always be bound um, because being in Japan, um, plastic means sanitary products or especially in the time of COVID, the increase of plastic use as a way to like be clean. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that continues to persist, but we there are efforts like Terumi at our cafe does bulk sales. Um, and so reducing that kind of waste there. And yeah, small efforts. I think, yeah, it's certainly not a utopia. <laughs> Yeah, I think that was the big misconception that we didn't want people to have. Um, yeah. And why we also created Eno is because we wanted to give you the bigger picture or like the more whole whole picture rather than, again, just this point that the media picks up on so um, often. And one of the points is that, you know, this is still Japan. There's no uh, difference between, you know, being in the countryside and being in a big city because Japan is a very small country in terms of landmass. Um, we're still really connected to the world. Um, even though we're deep in the mountains, you know, we're only 40 minutes away from the next big city, which is Tokushima. And so most people still also do their shopping in supermarkets and in cities. Um, of course, we have our local farmer's market, but people aren't going to be able to meet all of their needs here. And when you go out to shop, you're going to find things packaged the way that they are everywhere in Japan. And then so it doesn't mean that actually we're reducing necessarily the amount of garbage that we produce because, again, it's not that we're locally, you know, completely self-sufficient. And then so without that factor, um, if you're purchasing items that are going to come wrapped in a certain way, then you're always going to be producing that garbage.
Um, I'm showing Cafe Polestar right here and Terumi-san, her mother, um, is often credited with getting a lot of sustainable ideas going in Kamikatsu. Uh, she grew up in that area and started a lot of these initiatives. You can see the zero waste stickers on her window and we're going to be talking about this system more tomorrow with uh, Akira Sakano-san. Um, so let's talk a little bit about what you're doing specifically with iNow. Um, sorry, Ino. How, how does it work? Um, how many days? Uh, talk about your your specific project a little bit. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So Ino is a homestay program, as we mentioned before, and it's this idea that we're trying to integrate you into the local community. And I think like you mentioned at the beginning, like this is a project born out of the time of COVID, which is very um, unique, very rare. But I think it's, we, we saw what people would want in these times or post COVID, in COVID, which is just an immersive experience. And so that's what we aimed to create. And Linda also mentioned transformative tourism. Um, and because it takes time for this integration, for this quote unquote transformation, um, our base is a 10 day program. And that just gives, the participants time to feel like they can settle here, that they can meet local people, they can do local things, work with farmers, meet residents. Um, but we also realize that not everyone has this luxury of 10 days. And usually people who are doing 10 days are in periods of transition. Um, but people in the city also want to see the rural countryside life. And so we've started a short program, which is just a weekend program, three days, two nights. And that allows people to understand what we do, um, hopefully with the intention of one day returning back. And um, at least they get a short preview of what we're about and can understand. And our goal is really to kind of create fans of Kamikatsu and make make this a place people feel like they can return to. Mm -hmm. And as kind of mentioned, so a lot of times, you know, seeing just the system right is only going to be something that is very superficial but if you're going to be living in kamikatsu we want you to be immersed so that you can actually experience that on a day-to-day -day basis yourself so when people ask you know 45 categories what did she say <laughs> um uh if you think that you know then why don't you come and try that for 10 days and see for yourself whether or not that is actually such a big stretch of the imagination um and another factor is being in the countryside uh a lot of times there's a huge language barrier and also just a barrier of allowing outsiders in so it's not just for foreigners um coming into japan it's also for japanese who don't live in kamikatsu to try to feel like they fit in here um, and because we've been living here we wanted to create this program where we act as a bridge that will connect you you know to the locals so you don't have to feel like you're an outsider from the offset like from the very beginning you know we integrate you into the community um, meet with teachers where they're doing something that is sustainable because this is the way that they live their lives. So Nakamura-san that we mentioned, um, who is also in Andy's book, you know, he lives in a world where everything is self-sufficient for him. Um, he's built this life for himself. And so this in itself in this day and age is quite rare. And so we want to be able to get people to see that and then take whatever inspiration they want for themselves. Stay tuned. The interview will continue in less than a minute. This talk show and podcast is held every weekday, 9 a.m., 12 noon, or 5 p.m. Japan time, 
to talk with guests from around Japan and highlight the great work that they're doing keeping the quality of life and quality of our planet in balance with profits. All of the shows are 60 minutes long, enough time for listeners to learn about the innovation and expertise of the guest, as well as consider connections to sustainability. Because we are in Japan, I'm in Hiroshima and my guests are from all over Japan, listeners are also able to hear about life, culture, heritage, traditions in Japan, as well as Japanese-specific innovation or travel destinations. Although the setting of Seeking Sustainability Live is in Japan, a lot of the topics and key points that we talk about are certainly relevant in other parts of the world. We have an audience in America, in England, in Australia, in India, in so many different regions of the world. Thank you so much for listening. And I really appreciate your comments and questions during the live talk streams and after on the videos or podcasts. Now back to our show on Seeking Sustainability Live. Um, we have a question. Thanks, Brett, for the award. Thank you so much. Uh, Brett has asked, <laughs> has asked, do you think um shinto or historical cultural influences in japan have created a stronger connection with nature in japan and more kind of a ease into a more difficult above compliance level of recycling um what do you do you get that feeling there <laughs> from people because I'll, I'll tell you a funny story uh from years ago when i visited kamikazu i had the image that 100 of the local people would be on board that would be so enthusiastic about sustainability 100 into it and when i started meeting locals there I realized it was hard. It's a hurdle, right? And why do we have to work so much harder than every other area of Japan? But I credit so much the Zero Waste Academy for working so closely with the local community so that you've got policies from government, you've got the, the hub in between Zero Waste Academy, what Terumi-san was doing and what you guys are doing now and the local community and having the buffer in between policy and reality is so helpful. And for me, that is one of the reasons Kamikatsu has been so successful because of this collaboration between government policy and targets and nonprofit grassroots organization and local people. Mm -hmm. um, do, you, do you feel that being there after a while that it's kind of a special place in terms of this, this infrastructure of sorts? I think I'll just go back to the question before commenting, or maybe Linda can comment as well on the um, infrastructure. I think recycling is different than nature. So mm -hmm. I don't think necessarily like people's cultural influence or religious influences are, is directly tied to recycling because recycling is a system. It's how we throw out our garbage. Um, but is those things tied 
is is like a historic cultural influence is tied to their perception of nature or this idea to protect or respect nature. I think that's a little bit more stronger tied. But a lot of people do say we recycle because we have to, because this is the way we throw out garbage. Um, and of course, like with any anything, there's never a hundred percent buy-in. Um, and I think people have adapted, like we have adapted. Um, and I don't know if you want to comment to the yeah. um, organization. I guess just a little like so I would be careful just try to um, kind of put like an overarching um, narrative, you know, over something like so, for example, Shinto historical cultural context. Um, it's a little bit broad. I think that people are people. Um, and one of the things we've definitely known from working here, which is why we say, you know, from the outset, from the outside looking in, there's always this romanticization of what the system is. But, you know, again, we are a small population and there's definitely many people who do not believe in this system, you know, especially for the old, uh, our population, just for context is over 50%, um, over 50% of the population is 65 years and older. So in Kamikatsu, if you're 65, you're actually considered young. Um, so I think it's like by the time you're 75, you're considered old elder with a chance um, because there's quite a few people in their 80s and 90s and they're still very active in farming. And for them, you know, this system was something that was introduced 20 years ago. And before that, their system was just throwing everything in open dumping. There was a big hole in the ground um, or they would burn their garbage in their front yards. So to go from that to all of a sudden introduce 45 different categories, um, of course, the town office did send their um, people to go to every single settlement and explain and educate people, the residents, what the system meant. But just because you're educating people, you're still creating a big change. And so to have a reason to do something, you know, I think is going to be very individualized. And so a lot of the younger generations looking to Kamikatsu see this as something that they definitely want. But if you look at a generation gap of locals who have been living here their whole lives, this is not necessarily something they want. Because like you mentioned, you know, why would you want to make your life more difficult, right? And especially when you're older and trying to learn this new system, um, it's not always easy. So there's a lot of gaps in terms of how people actually accept the system itself. And I think that there is, a, you know, a little bit of a, again, romanticization in the media where everybody clumps the village as a whole, Um and a, cons a consensual whole, whereas there's actually many, many different varieties of people who adapt, choose to, or don't want to participate in the system. I, I remember that as well. And um, it's so interesting because I was so gung-ho enthusiastic. And this is like 10 years ago when I visited. And I'm like, this is amazing. What you are doing is amazing. And I kept meeting local people like, Mendoksai, it's such a pain. How come when nobody else is doing it, how come we have to do it? And I would say, no, this is the future. This is the way, you know. And then I think they, they kind of reacted positively to my enthusiasm. You know, and I think by you guys being there, by people going there because of sustainability, having that mix between a typical tourist destination, because it is, people have been typical tourists there for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, having typical tourism side by side with sustainable tourism, I think is really exciting. And you're going to see people become interested in sustainable tourism who would never have thought about it before right so i'm so excited to see 
the progress over the years. One, one thing I want to mention, going back to nature and kamikatsu, one of the products from the area is the leaf business. I always think this is so interesting. I've never heard of a leaf business before, um, but they use ornamental leaves harvested from kamikatsu in restaurants around Japan, in high quality bentos around Japan. I love that this is one of their products. Also kamikatsu bansha, the local tea, which I adore. It's like a fermented tea. Do you like it? Yes. <laughs> it's funny because I think that most people who try it love it. Um, but a lot of times we even speak to farmers and they say they don't like it. So they produce it, but they don't enjoy it. No, but I think a lot of local, I mean, local mm -hmm. people just grew up drinking it. So yeah. it's like nothing special, but we're like, wow, it's fermented. Um, yeah, and the Iragori business, I think if you speak to someone maybe 10 years, 20 years ago, this is definitely what they know Kamikatsu for. And now you see the duality, people knowing it for zero waste, but also people still knowing it and recognizing it for Iragori. And Irodori was so successful because it gave so many elderly an opportunity. So it was very tied with like um, revitalization and giving elderly opportunities to be self-sufficient and work. And it was a resource that was very plentiful in the mountains here. And then to be able to use that and then make Kamikatsu known. Out and even outside of Japan, actually, some of the um, leaves were shipped. And, and also interestingly with Awabancha tea, um, it recently got recognized as an intangible cultural heritage because it's such a unique process of creating. And uh, so I think like for such a tiny, tiny village, the smallest mm -hmm. village in Shikoku, we have a couple things that are going for us in terms of um, what we're known for. And it's nice that it's not just zero waste, so people have kind of a wider diversity of things to appreciate in Kamikatsu. When I when I first started studying or visiting Kamikatsu 10 years ago, I was so hopeful that the model of Kamikatsu would be applied in other areas around Japan. And it hasn't really been picked up too much. But I think now that there's a hotel which just opened last year, now that you guys are doing tourism products for homestay and experiences, there's momentum. Do you do you feel progress or it's kind of hard because you're kind of in COVID still, but I, I feel momentum for you. <laughs> um, <laughs> read the vibes for us. <laughs> but there is a younger generation coming and with the new generation of people coming in, there's new ideas and it does. And I mean, I just came recently and Linda's been here longer, but it does feel like there's movement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, we definitely hope so. Um, but movement, I think, also just comes from people realizing that they want maybe more from their lives than just existing in a city. Um, and sorry, I don't mean it like that. That's <laughs> not so bad. If you're in a city, you're still living as well. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think that that comes, from, that comes from just looking to maybe bigger, you know, like when you're in the countryside, you have so much space. Um, there's more food security because you can grow your own food. So you don't have to depend on others. You know where your water is coming from. And I think that these values are becoming more and more important to people, especially in this pandemic, where, you know, if you can't, there's a lockdown where you can't go outside, you're only in your apartment and that becomes your whole world. And so if this happens again, or if things become more serious with climate change, then is that where you really want to spend your days. 
Um, and I think we get a lot of people who come to us because they want to experience what life is like in the countryside because they're thinking about actually moving to the countryside. And so this is also a good chance for them you know, to actually live a day-to-day -day life, talk to a farmer, work on a farm, understand you know, how that actually feels rather than just as a concept. And in that mm -hmm. sense, we do get a lot of um, interest in, you know, not again, just for the zero waste system, but just again, life in the countryside itself. It's that whole concept of slow travel and uh, having meaningful experiences that you can personalize and engage with local people that I think it makes your program so special. Um, I One of the tenants, one of the main parts of your program is, of course, working together with organic farmers. Can you tell us about these two wonderful people you work with? Yes, both of their last names are Abe. <laughs> um, and they're organic farmers in Kamikatsu. Um, and both of them started their business here in Kamikatsu. And I think the reason we take them, we take our participants particularly to them is because they've chosen to do organic farming and there's a lot of kind of resistance against organic farming and it's not very popular concept in Japan, but they see the value and I think we partner with people who have the same values as us and they certainly believe in the same things in terms of like a connection with nature or doing things um, in a more holistic way and also to see like as Linda said like a chance to meet farmers is a chance to see what life in the countryside is like what it's like to be self-sufficient. Um, and the realities of mm -hmm. what running a business like this means. I mean, just to go back to your point, Brett, um, in the comments, you know, that idea of nature and recycling and that like, I think it is quite a not just a Western point of view, but also um, a city centric point of view where people have this idealized image of mm -hmm. what life in the countryside is like. And I think it comes a lot from perspective. You know, if you live where you're surrounded by concrete and everything you need is bought from a store, you think that nature outside of these walls must be so idyllic. Um, but when you're coming from a place you know, when you live in nature your whole life, for example, it becomes something that you are just living and also struggling and surviving with, right? So nature is not always your friend. Um, when your whole livelihood depends on your crops, you know, then I can see why there's a lot of resistance against organic, for example, because you understand that if you don't make these crops, then, you know, you're not going to survive for the year. And so you have to consider these different aspects um, when we look at the way that people see nature. It's not always something that is like a Ghibli movie. You know, it is part of life. And a lot of people see it as just a part of their lives rather than something that is so special in a sense. Yeah, we've we've talked to a few organic farmers in the series. I just visited a organic tea farm factory the other day, um, and I hope to do an interview with him as well. Really interesting in the Hiroshima area. And he was talking about taking over a tea plantation, which never used chemicals for 70 years, but he still resists using the word organic. He always just uses natural. 
I think it's because the hurdle to certification is really difficult. And there's an idea that organic in Japan is actually not organic by international standards. There's a, a lot of things. So a lot of the organic farmers are actually using the word natural and explaining there are no pesticides, there are no chemicals used. And I thought that was a really interesting difference that he, he made a point of. We actually just had a recent conversation with um, Narumi-san, the lady farmer that you see in the bottom. Um, and she was explaining to us that this year she is going natural farming too. Because again, with organic, there are you know many different certifications that they have to go through. And then also with organic, you can still use organic fertilizer and you can still use organic pesticides. So there's a lot of layers that I think the consumer is not understanding about what that means and what the real difference is between just regular farming with pesticides and organic. And what she mentioned was that if she, like she also wants to farm zero waste. And in order to do that, you know, natural farming where everything gets used um, is the style that she thinks is the best way. And what she also wants is to use what she calls nature power. So rather than using, I mean, she has, she's not, she has nothing against fertilizers, but she wants to let nature grow the way that nature wants to grow rather than trying to force different types of, um, well, energizers, fertilizers into the soil. She wants to see what her land can naturally do. And I think so that might be influenced from Fukuoka Sensei, which is also a famous natural mm -hmm. farmer from the Shikoku Island mm -hmm. area. Mm -hmm. um, his book, One Straw Revolution, mm -hmm. really influenced people around the world. I remember reading his book, Fukuoka Sensei's book from Shikoku Island when I was in California and people in California saying, oh, I read that book. Isn't that amazing? I'm like, what? This is amazing. Really? I was so surprised. So his idea of letting nature do its work and who are we humans to say we know better than nature, right? Mm -hmm. I love that concept. And it's like learning from nature and having nature be the guide of how you do these practices in farming. And I guess that really ties also to like permaculture as well, seeing things in, in a system, seeing things, the ecosystem as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the cultural experiences side of the program that you do. Yes. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk about Osamu Nakamura-san? <laughs> yes. Um, such a character. I love him. Nakamura-san is kind of the legend of Kamikatsu at this point. Um, <laughs> he is everybody's sensei. So Nakamura-san um, moved to Kamikatsu what, 30, over 35 years ago. Um, and then he is a craftsman and an artist, and he lives sustainably and does everything by hand. So he organizes his life based on what he knows he's capable of. If he thinks that something is too much, then he doesn't do it. So he doesn't have a car. Um, he goes everywhere by walking or by bus. And I think from him, I probably learned the most about just what a good life consists of, you know, and this is what we try to make as our theme for, you know, is that we're not trying to, you know, say this is the, these are the things you need to do. We want to give you a guideline of how other people are living and then let you take your inspiration from that. Mm -hmm. And I think it's like, not, this is a cultural activity. This is mm -hmm. a, you know, a sustainability activity. It's like, this is someone's life and mm -hmm. within that life you get to see all these different aspects 
and you get to learn about art and craft and that's culture but that's also maybe sustainability and preservation of like certain ways of doing things and i think by just spending time you gain all those things in a very nuanced way that you wouldn't have otherwise had if it was just like a workshop or something like that. Mm -hmm. And Nakamura-san is a very, like, he's a world citizen. Um, he traveled for 15 years by himself. And then in that time um, went basically everywhere except for South America and America. Um, and having had that perspective, you know, that really tell like teaches him about what he wants from his life. So it's not necessarily just something that is a cultural experience that kind of fits a box mm -hmm. he you know will be open to experiencing everything um the food that he always makes at home is nepalese he makes all these curries that he learned in india and nepal and then the woodblock carving that he does is from a monk that he learned from in nepal and then so it's a global it's a global community you know in a mountain hut in the middle of nowhere japan <laughs> it's not a mountain hut it's a, it's a really beautiful house <laughs> But it's gorgeous. It's a gorgeous old house. It's off grid. He lives really, really simply. He doesn't have electricity. He, he doesn't have electricity. He has does he? No? Maybe it was a different house he was in before. He, and he was telling me about emptying his toilet and using yeah. using he his food waste as well when I visited. And he made me the most delicious curry. Um, in the book, Abundance of Less, I love his whole concept of time. Mm -hmm. And if, you're, if your life is not focused on making money, you have a lot of time. And time doing your chores is as enjoyable as time with other people. And he just, he has such a beautiful soul. Mm -hmm. And he's so eager to talk to people and share his time and mm -hmm. i just i found that such a wonderful experience so it's so wonderful to see that he's a part of your program mm -hmm. so so amazing he is like um a buddhist poet <laughs> and then he's just a he's just the buddha basically but he's also yeah, he's just like a you know a, a, a regular being. person yeah. yeah and it's just these are the choices he's made and and that's i think in itself inspiring because when you say someone is like this next level it's mm -hmm. like it feels unattainable but we can make choices in our own life and i think spending that time with him makes you realize that mm -hmm. and he never says for anybody who comes to visit that this is what you should be doing you know he always tells people that this is my choice this is my life that i've worked out for me designed and you need to design your own time and design your own life and one of his like um well my favorite phrases that he always says is design your own life it means that you have the choice you know you are crafting what you want to see on a day-to-day -day basis um based on the choices that you have no matter what you think you're not capable of choosing because of the circumstances mm -hmm. um you actually do have those options <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it's amazing. And I reread um, the book and I, I saw your videos as well. Whenever I, I engage with him, he always inspires me. And then next time I'm doing a chore, I try to think, just take your time, try to enjoy it, you know, and why not? Instead of rushing through things, you know, I, I think that's, that's such a, a wonderful philosophy of life. I love it. Uh, let's talk about Atsuko Watanabe-san. 
Can you tell us about her? <laughs> We're just fascinated by the way you, you switch yeah. the slides. We're yeah. just watching you like technology. Is crazy. <laughs> it's so fun. Yeah. Uh, so Asuko-san was also in Abundance of Less. And one of the things that really inspired me about what she was talking about was also about time mm -hmm. and taking away the pressures of making money, making enough and surviving on very, well, the abundance of less, like a very low maintenance lifestyle. And uh, so it's wonderful. She's part of your program as well. I don't think that's really her philosophy. I mean, like she doesn't want to live um, without money. I think she's always asking us actually, you know, why if this system is so successful, do we not make any money from it? Um, I think she's a very, very pragmatic person, um, a realist. So the way that she sees her life through our conversations is more that, again, she also has very strong moral standards. Um, so she's a very active person. And I think that actually takes away from this perspective that people have where, you know, ideas only exist in cities, opportunities only exist in cities. But this is very not true. When you meet Atsuko-san, she um, is an activist. She works with Amnesty International. You know, she's always caring about the environmental issues in Japan. Um, she was a city councilor for Kamikatsu as well because she wanted to be a part of the decision-making body. Mm -hmm. I just see her as like someone who's very guided by a compass and that compass is pointed in things that she values. Yeah, as Linda said, the environment, um, injustices or human rights. And, and I think to see someone so bold and mm -hmm. see someone so vocal um, is very inspiring because as Linda also said, um, I think that there's certain images people have of the countryside and certain kinds of people that are in the countryside. And Atsuko Watanabe-san certainly shows us that that image can be shattered mm -hmm. um, by having your voice and by having presence and taking action. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's very, very strong. And especially in a Japan where there's not a lot of people who are activists, especially for the environment. Um, I think that was actually one of the things we've always discussed amongst villagers here and just listening to elders talk and just listen to the young people too, is how uh, a lot of people feel like it's not my problem. You know, there's a very strong sense of this problem. If it doesn't affect me directly, it's other people's problem. I'm not going to get involved. Um, and she does not take things sitting down. So she definitely is very vocal and then also gives us a lot of inspiration about things that, you know, we can do to make a bigger difference by actually speaking up about things that we see. That's wonderful. Uh, let's talk a little. We've got 10 more minutes. Oh, my gosh, the time is going. Uh, let's talk about Cafe Polestar, because I always think of Cafe Polestar as such an important kind of central hub in Kamikatsu for if you need a coffee or you need some food. And it's such a beautiful place. And of course, Terumi-san is one of your co-founders. Um, is Cafe Polestar experience part of the program or are some of the meals there? How How is Cafe Polestar connected to what you do? It's definitely one of the experiences. So our program, we do it customized based on what each individual wants. Um, we had one or a couple from Tokyo who were only interested in what 
uh, learning about the countryside. So we made that program really farming specific. But for other people who really want to just experience Kamikatsu as a whole, you know, they also have a chance to work in, uh, in Polestar to see how a zero waste business is run. And then we also give them a chance to learn recipes from Tarumi so that she can teach them a lot of these, not even traditional, but just very delicious um, meals using Japanese techniques. And then also Mayumi-san, who is our pastry chef, uh, she also uses only, well, mostly local ingredients and seasonal. And then that is another class that people can take where they'll spend a day with her and learn recipes, cook with her, bake with her, and eat whatever they make. <laughs> eat. <laughs> and eat. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think mm -hmm. Polestar was created to be this kind of central place um, for people in Kamikatsu and a place to showcase zero waste products and zero waste ideas. Um, and so that was how Polestar was born. Um, and it is integral in, in terms of um, Terumi's role in connecting with the community and what she offers um, in terms of being able to make sure that what we're doing is tied to the community. And so, yes, it's <laughs> Polestar is Eno and Eno is Polestar in, in many ways. Yeah. I mean, also the concept when they first created Polestar was, um, so Tomi-san, uh, Terumi's mother, was saying that she shouldn't have to drive 40 minutes you know, to the city to be able to get a nice cup of coffee. That living in the countryside does not mean there shouldn't be you know, innovation and different types of creatives opening businesses. And again, when people come, a lot of times our visitors are from outside, so either from the city or from other cities around Japan, not necessarily just within the local community. And people always get this surprise look when they see how oshare or like how stylish the cafe is and then we get comments from people that say oh this food you can serve it in Tokyo as if that you know again only good things can exist in the city where most people from the countryside have left have gone you know experienced the world learn from different places and then have chosen to come back and bring those influences with them and then yeah <laughs> Just running. Yeah, we're running out of time. I can talk for Great. Uh, let's talk about uh, pricing. And you have the 10 day program, and it's about 250,000 yen for accommodation and all the programs, but doesn't include all the food. Is that right? Yes. And so and you then Accommodation in the Eno house, which is the full, um, it has a full kitchen. You have a full house to yourself. And we want people to be able to cook for themselves as another way of learning how to be more self-sufficient. Um, but a lot of times in the program, we end up just cooking meals together because again, part of that integration is really just sharing time, you know, allowing you to meet people on a more intimate basis. Um, we have a comment from YouTube. Thanks, Maddie. I work at a hotel and we absolutely depend and appreciate what tourism projects can do to create business. Mm -hmm. So I think that's so true. It's not just you're creating appeal for your program. You're creating destination appeal for Kamikatsu. And I would say you're creating destination appeal for Japan mm -hmm. by offering something so unique and so appealing uh, to international and I hope Japanese residents as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you have a new three-day program. Uh, what What is the price for the three-day program, if you're okay mentioning? <laughs> <laughs> We're definitely okay mentioning. I think we don't remember. Yeah, we actually haven't started it. So we're starting okay. it this month. So if you are interested, you can contact yes, us. Please contact us. I'll have the details okay. for you there. 
yeah let's let's make it yeah easier if you're interested in a shorter program uh get in touch with the eno group uh kana and linda that's you two and uh through the website is best or through instagram or social media you guys have a few different areas what do you like using the most well, the best application is probably our website because we have the application program on there um, and then I'll ask you some questions about yourself because we are creating customized programs for each guest we do have an interview process where after we receive your information yeah for the long program so that we can know what you're looking for and we can tailor your program towards that for the short program we don't need an interview um, again if you have just questions you can reach us through Instagram if you want to DM us we will answer um, or, email. or email probably will be best because we check that all the time good good question from Brett this was a problem for me when I visited Kamikatsu mm -hmm. last time mm -hmm. there wasn't a lot of plant-based options when I was there um, but of course, if you tell Turumi-san in advance at Cafe Polestar, she can make some food. I, there was another restaurant I went to and I asked in advance and they were able to make a vegetarian vegan meal for me, which was wonderful. Um, has it gotten a little bit easier for plant-based or still you but need to say in advance? A, a vegetarian and vegan myself, slash vegan trying to be. Um, there is a lot of options and definitely I used to live with Turumi so she got quite used to just cooking vegetarian options. At the cafe itself there's always a vegan curry on the menu um, so every single day that is available and I think people have gotten a lot more used to the idea of vegetarianism because we cater to a lot of guests who are also foreigners. Um, everyone actually as soon as they see a foreigner they just assume that they're a vegetarian <laughs> Especially here. Yeah, yeah exactly. In Kamikatsu. So people just always ask that because um, there's been a disproportionate amount of vegetarians. Who and come I think here. that's that's about like what you said mm -hmm. earlier, JV, is like the more we people we bring in and, you know, then people stand behind these ideas and think, okay, this must be important. And mm -hmm. what can we do to adapt our business? What can we do to adapt our practices, our lifestyle? Um, and then it just is kind of a give and take both ways. And I guess quickly, just the last thing about the program, um, what we like to do is also integrate our guests where we want them to feel like they can contribute back to the community. So it's not just a one-way street. Um, the goal for Eno you know, is for people to come and see what they discover about themselves. And then whatever they get inspired by, if they have a project in mind, we're also here to support them. So we want people to feel like, you know, especially when they think that, oh, I've gained so much from this community, I want to give back. Um, however they feel like they can give back. We've had artists who were painting pictures of beautiful scenery that they liked, and we, we keep those in the cafe. Um, we've had other artists who drew stickers for us to show the different categories. And then we have that as also omiyage. We have photographers too. So, <laughs> it goes on. Yeah, it goes it's, on. It's, it's about creating a space where people mm -hmm. feel like they can also give back. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Um, Brett says, I'm a vegan, so that's good to hear. Put Kamikatsu on my list to visit. I think definitely. So, yeah. Now that you guys have your, your homestay program, experience program, there's also a new hotel. Um, there are a few restaurant options, and there's a beautiful, like, terraced rice field up the hill uh, a little bit ways there's some great hiking there's a beautiful river that goes through mm -hmm. you can see in the photo here do they have the koi nobori the carp streamers mm -hmm. across yes. right now not across that river but the one by the onsen i love that
Um, I I remember I camped, uh, there was a glamping place. So I I camped right there next to the river Mm -hmm. and just hearing that sound of the river all night. I just love that. It's a beautiful, and of course you could do a hot spring bath right across the river too. So there's a lot of wonderful appeal for coming. Oh my gosh, you have to mention (laughs) craft beer. There's two craft beer places that if you like craft beer you will love kamikatsu and they're also doing zero waste rise and win shout out to them they're doing a great job they also have a bar in tokyo if anybody in tokyo wants to try the beer because it's very good Mm -hmm. anything else we got another minute i think you you said it all for us (laughs) i'm such a fan so i can't wait I can't wait till I can go back. But like you said, and I think I asked Terumi-san if I could come and see her uh, last year. And she said, maybe wait a bit during coronavirus. I think when you have a population where so many people are elderly, Mm -hmm. it is a consideration, right? You don't want to really encourage loads of new people coming in all the time. Um, But hopefully the vaccines will roll out and uh, we can start going back. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Um, Most of the village now is actually vaccinated. So that is definitely a relief. Wonderful news. Uh, Thank you so much, Kana and Linda. It was wonderful talking to you. And thank you so much for all the wonderful, innovative initiatives you are putting together to allow people to visit Kamikatsu, to have slow travel, meaningful travel. It's Mm -hmm. wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time, JJ. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Wait, uh, everybody, if you're interested, please join us tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. We will talk to Akira Sakano, who was also one of the innovators in Kamikatsu for many years. And now she is in Kyoto. And we will be talking about her zero waste accreditation system. So please join us tomorrow morning if you're free. Thank you, everybody. Thank, thank you. you. Bye. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. If you want to learn more about the work that I do, have a look at inboundambassador.com. Sponsor the work that I'm doing on the YouTube channel, Patreon, buy me a coffee, coffee or haps. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great day.